Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. He koonai pūrangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. You know, you could get nothing worse than a, a, a six-year-old child being abducted and murdered. It doesn't get any worse. Hi, I'm Jesse Mulligan, host of the Afternoons program on RNZ National. And welcome back to the second series of Crimes NZ. It's a podcast where I talk with people connected in some way or other with New Zealand's most notorious crimes. In this episode, I'm speaking to Keith Price. In 1987, he was a detective investigating the disappearance of six-year-old Teresa Cormack. I think it was a big changer um, because of the circumstances, a young girl walking to school, the fact that it took eight days before we found her, and then obviously 15 years before we got the offender. It, it was uh, highly publicised throughout the country. And I've had feedback from a lot of people um, telling me that um, since that happened, they are completely different in the way they treat their children going to school. There were protests at the time as well. I saw one, a photo of one on the West Coast in March, from March 1987. There's a placard that said, Teresa Cormack, Louisa Damadrin, your child could be next. So obviously it was making waves outside of Hawke's Bay. Yeah, I mean, obviously because of the circumstances, it got a lot of publicity from us because we were, you know, when you've got a six-year-old missing, you're, you're going pretty hard to um, get information so we could track her movements and... Uh, and there was a lot of interest throughout the country. We obviously spread it around police districts to get suspects nominated and everything we could do. And how much pressure was there on you guys? That's a good question. And there's a lot of pressure on you because of what's happened. And because and you're, a, you're a policeman, you want to solve crimes like this as quick as possible. But you got on with your job. So it was a pressured job, but it, you were doing your job as well. Uh, so to take us back to that time, we've got some audio um, thanks to the Ngatanga Sound and Vision. This is the principal of Teresa's school, Trevor Campbell. We'll be discussing and, and explaining as much as we can to our children. Uh, I believe that our, our normal school day, as close as we can, will have to go on. But there'll be uh, support for, for staff and, and for children through the day. We plan to start our day, um, as we have a large number of, of Māori children in our school, we'll be starting for the staff with a, a karaki, a prayer for, uh, to help and to support us. And um, people were really scared, Keith, because actually they knew that the killer was still out there. Yeah, that's um, a really trip down memory lane when I listen to that. And it, it just reiterates how, um, how big an impact it made on the community which obviously affected the whole country. Was it, um, highlight is not the right word, but one of the most memorable episodes in your career as a police officer? Yeah, they, um, to arrest him would be one of the biggest. 
results you could ever get so satisfying after having gone through what we had with her. You're not a police officer anymore? No, no, I've been out of the job for about 16 years now. And this was probably um, by far the biggest crime I worked on at the latter part of my career. So after the, the Jules Mikas was arrested or identified as the killer, was that pretty much it for you with the police? I served another two years, but having had this sit on our plate for a while, it was um, um, I was never going to um, get an achievement and a result like this in any other crime. It's very, it was a very unique crime, um, and when I talk to other policemen, they agree. I mean, this this is just out there. You know, you could get nothing worse than a, a six-year-old child being abducted and murdered. It doesn't get any worse. What are you doing now, by the way? I'm a city councillor with Napier City Councillor, and um, after I left the police, I went into the hospitality business for a um, for about twelve years. Great. Where did you run? What what, what was your business? Uh, Thirsty Whale Bar and Restaurant in uh, West Yeah. Kenya. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Had some great nights of the Thirsty Whale. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're out of the fat and into the fire. Okay, so let's go back then. Um, tough as it will be for some people to recall. Uh, here, we've got a clip from Napier Mayor at the time, Dave Prevenson. This shows a, an increasing um, deterioration in the uh, social scene and uh, uh, I'm concerned for the community safety as it seems to uh, show a steady downward trend uh, right across the country and uh, of course it's focused on Napier at the present moment but there's quite a bit of uh, violence going on right throughout the country. Do you think think it's a a problem specifically in Napier? Well I think it's um, coincidental that it's happened in Napier although one must say that we've had our fair share of uh, these events recently with the the two recent ones and uh, that's focused attention but uh, there is uh, quite a bit of violence goes on in other areas in New Zealand. Yeah he was referring to a case three years earlier, uh, Cursor Jensen. Were you involved in that one as well Keith? Yes I was. Really just a coincidence that those two cases happened in uh, Napier but both hugely high profile huh? They're two very big cases to have in one city. Yeah, well and truly. Um, and, and there's another case, another six-year-old, Louisa Damadran, who was kidnapped and murdered by Peter Joseph Holdham in Christchurch. That was just a few months earlier. Um, we've got this clip of an interview with him at the time. Uh, her father, I really don't understand this could happen again. I just can't believe it. I really cannot believe it. Has this search rekindled any memories of the search for Louisa? Yeah, it's all over again. It's very hard to talk about it. It's, you know, it's uh, it's like having a nightmare again. You know, the same things all over again. Has your child Michael said anything to you about Teresa's disappearance? Yes, as soon as I was reading the paper, when he saw it in the paper, he said, um, "Is the bad bad person has taken that girl away?" He, he keeps telling me that some bad person has taken Louisa away all the time and he thinks somebody's going to take him away too. And we keep him, no, that will not happen. When I was reading the paper and he saw, saw that girl's photo in the paper and straight away said, is a bad person taking that girl away? What advice can you give Teresa's parents and parents of other young children? Well, we know how they feel and we are thinking of them. I'm hoping and praying that she's... she's She's alive and she'll be found. And to all other parents, we feel that it is very important to take 
their children to school if they are very young and um, watch them because there's so many things happening. Yes, Bob de Mutterin, who is the father of uh, six-year-old Louisa Damadran, who was kidnapped and murdered a few months earlier from Teresa Cormack. It's Teresa's case we're talking about today. Maybe let's begin with the search. So do you recall um, when she went missing, what sort of effort was undertaken to search for Teresa Cormack? Oh, there was some uh, phases set up where there was searching going around and um, people running these... uh, you know, um, they were run by generally by a sergeant, and they'd do areas around the around where she went missing, moving your way out. Uh, you know, getting a bigger circumference around the um, the point where we thought she'd gone missing from, and that was um, police, civilians, uh, it was all hands on board. No shortage of people wanting to help, eh? No, no. Sometimes it's um it's hard to collate all the people that want to help. It's got to be um it's got to be organised and you know covered so you know where you've been and where you haven't been. Was it one of those organised searches that eventually found her body? No, no, she was found um, uh, by someone walking along the beach, like 10 or 12 k's away out of town, Taranaki Beach. Before we get to what happened when she was found then, uh, let's have a listen to her mum, uh, Kelly Piggott, going through uh, about the worst thing a parent could ever go through. If anyone knows anything out there, just let us know or inform the nearest police station. It doesn't matter anything, just so long as we get an idea where she is, you know, how she is or anything. Just some, you know, somebody must know something. Are you optimistic she's still okay? Oh, yes. Definitely. Incredible to hear that she was optimistic at that time, um, trying to believe the best for her daughter. So what do we know about that morning, the day that Theresa Cormack went missing, Keith? I mean, I firstly got to say it's quite fantastic the way she spoke for for a mother in yeah. that situation. You know, that's um, pretty well done. I guess uh, when the when um, the, the alarm bells went up, initially there's just patrols, you know, police patrols going everywhere trying to see if we can find her. Because initially you 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 go through the missing person stage, and then it becomes a little bit more suspect. Doesn't take long when a six-year-old's missing that um, you, you start looking pretty hard, but you, you know there's natural hazards that, that sometimes kids fall into too. So there's lots of options you've got to look at. What do we know about what happened that morning? Well, we know um, we she left for school. Um, she, I don't think she was that fussed on going to school that day. Um, she'd had her birthday the day before, and we believed she would have got to school about nine o'clock from our reconstruction which subsequently um, um, was not right. So can you explain that to us? So she's walked around the streets for possibly an hour to an hour and a half, and we've we've got one sighting of a lady seeing someone in her little red raincoat approximately two to three k's away from the school, which has a lot more relevance with hindsight. Right, so so what do we definitely know about what happened? That she left home and, and never went to school. No, she got to the school gates and then went and went walking. Um, exactly where she went, we can't be sure of. And that's that that was the only sighting, was it? That um that placed her a couple of k's yeah. away. Yeah, which is um, um one of those um, when you you know like a, a young girl and she had a really distinctive raincoat, which we we um publicised, we did a mannequin quite early with their clothing on, and we got that one sighting, which, as I say, is, is, has a lot more relevance now than what it did at the time. 
it's something that you have to consider, but she was a long way away from where she uh, should have been. Mm. And look, if I, if my kids, uh, one of my kids is homesick and I forget to call the school, I'll get a text uh, at about nine o'clock or nine fifteen saying uh, that they're not there. But of course, there was no system like that in nineteen eighty-seven. No, that's correct. That's that's one good thing that happens now. But I'm, um, I mean, in, uh, prior to this, it was just you know, kiddies wandered down the street and went to school. It was never seen as there's any worries about them not getting to school. That's the change that's come into it. And now, I mean, as a result of that, as you say, there's there's um, safety points put in by schools. And so, when did her mum notice something was wrong? When did she raise the alarm? I probably uh, would be unsure of the timing of that. Um, I think it was yeah. pretty early. Yeah, I've got 5.30 here, actually. 5.30, she called the police. Okay, I, I can't confirm that, I'm sorry. Yeah, okay. So so what do you remember then about your involvement at the time and, um, and where you started sort of looking to, to work out, who, well, who, who might have done this? I guess when you found the body, you realised what had been done and it became a murder investigation. But can you tell us a bit about that time? So, obviously, we, um, we, were, we were looking for her and trying to get sightings, etc., for the whole eight days prior. But then, um, then there was a report came in of a body on the beach and um, Detective Sergeant Shep, um, he was assigned to the scene and he went out and dealt with that side of the, uh, of the inquiry. I understand he made a bit of a silent promise to her. Did you ever hear about that? Yeah, yeah. He was quite open that he um, he um, he was going to get the offender. And uh, we've got the school principal, Trevor Campbell, again. This is how the school coped with the news that the body had been found. We planned to have three separate assemblies throughout the school, one for our five- and six-year-olds, one for our seven- and eights, and one for our nine- and ten-year-olds. And at that assembly, we will be... Uh, sharing with the children um, the facts as we know them at a child level and um, accepting that that we all have a uh, feeling of grief and pain with the news that we've been given through the weekend and then advising them how best to handle that. That's really directing them on the more personal questions back towards their parents and um, in the general sense, um, with their teachers, and in the hope that we can continue as we did last week to keep providing the security in terms of routines that our children need through the day. We're also um, working in with Teresa's family and waiting for some guidance from, from them of what type of involvement they would wish from the school, and we'll respond to that as that becomes clear. It must be a fairly frightening thing for the whole school to have have something like this happen. It must really bring home the the sort of the, the dangers that, that children are facing. Yes, it, it, it's had an effect on our whole community, as well as the immediate school community and the parents involved, but the broader community as well. And um, I've prepared and, and will be sending home to hopefully so that it will be of help to parents some some suggestions that, that we continue on as we did last week where we had a very sensible and, and reasonable response from parents in terms of making sure that their, their children at the moment were under the care of an older person as they go to and pro, you know, within our community and encouraging parents to continue to give the, the tremendous open support which they've given to the police because 
started this, it hasn't finished, isn't there? Uh, I'm speaking with detective or former Detective Sergeant Keith Price about the Teresa Cormack murder. Uh, that was the school principal from Teresa School, Trevor Campbell, uh, talking about the news that the body had been found. So, Keith, where do you start looking for a suspect? How do you start? OK, so so as soon as um, the button's pressed, shall I say, we, we go through um, dossiers, the police officers and people nominating offenders. I mean, people ring up and say... Um, such and such to be an offender. So we um, we then just start working through those people, interviewing, um, alibiing. Um, I believe, I th- just from recollection, we always try to get two alibis for every person, and it's a matter of just following leads. And um, and people people a lot of people come forward with nomination of suspects. Some of them very good, some of them a long way off. But um, that's an assessment we had to make and work on. And this guy Jules Mekas, do you remember him? Uh, very well. Um, I didn't deal with him initially. Uh, Detective Searle dealt with him and interviewed him. And with our reconstruction that, um, that, that we thought she went missing at nine, Mika's had an alibi with the social welfare and that he had a meeting at 9.30, which he did keep. Detective Searle, to his credit, took blood and hair samples from Mika's. But the alibi for that timing was pretty solid. Mm. You said earlier that um, that sighting two or three kilometres from the school might end up being significant. Why do you say that? Well, that was later. I think it was it was between 10 and 10.30, that sighting, which um, at the time it didn't appear as though it would have been her. But in, as I say, with hindsight, it was probably pretty likely to have been her. So what else is going on? There's a story here that Mikas, Jules Mikas... Uh, had painted his car. You know anything about that? He was questioned about that, and um, I can't take any further on that. I know he was questioned by, I think, Detective Searle questioned him on that. It was a, I mean, the sad thing about it was he had a really good alibi for that 9 to 9.30 period or 9.45 period. But was there not a thought that maybe, you know, that that she had gone walking and that it could have happened later? Um, At the time, we, we were of the view... I didn't do the scenes or anything, so I didn't do the reconstruction, which is always important that a, a reconstruction is done so that you do establish some boundaries. And there was nothing else to suggest that she hadn't got to school and then got abducted shortly after that. Right. You're proceeding on the basis that she'd gone missing sometime just after 9am. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we're pretty happy... Um, uh, we were pretty happy at the time, or the guys doing the reconstruction, that it was around nine o'clock in the morning. And, and of course, DNA evidence was probably in its infancy, if it was even around in 1987. So, as you say, that Detective Searle had taken blood and hair samples from Jules Mikas, but there wasn't anything uh, connecting him to the body, right? No, that's right. And, and I mean, um, DNA wasn't sort of heard of in those days, but we did a lot of... Uh, blood grouping, so you might have just got someone to a, a similar um, blood group yeah. or a hair sample or something like that, which was nowhere near as accurate as DNA. Like it mm. could give you one in ten chance or one in five chance of having that same blood, depending on the grouping. What do we know about Jules Mikas? He, he is, um, his parents were refugees. And um, he was he was born in a refugee camp in Auckland, I believe. He moved. My latter part was um, 
he had been living in Lower Hutt and um, Detective Orr, Detective Gary Orr, had had a lot of dealings with him. And um, he nominated him to us as a suspect as he he knew he had moved to Napier. So he had a lot of, um, Gary Orr had a lot of previous dealings with him that he, uh, he immediately nominated him as a suspect for this. He had done some other stuff, related stuff? Yeah, there was a lot of um, a lot of sexual matters, peeping and peerings, which which Gary was quite happy that he would be the type of person that could commit this crime. That must have been a long fifteen years before you finally got some evidence which would link Mikas with the crime. Yeah, it was. I I, I mean, um, I worked on it initially for um, I think it was two or three weeks, and then I was required to go away on another operation. I was involved in police operation. That is not a yeah. Um, and then it was a long, long 15 years. It was great when we, we got news that we'd, um, there'd been a profile obtained and then there was a group of us set up to, um, to start working on suspects from that profile that had been obtained. And was and, that just some, some new technology that they decided to apply to some of these cold cases? So it was, um, yeah, DNA had become, become pretty powerful and, um, and, and they'd, um, samples had been held from Teresa, and then the ESR, um, in discussion with Shabby, who, who was there from day one, um, decided that they would see what they could do with these samples and subsequently got the profile. Of Jules Mikas? Yes. Of 60 million who, times. Yeah, 60 million times more likely to be him than from any other randomly selected male. Yep, that's dead right. Yep. So, so it, was quite a, it was exciting for us. You know, to think that we've at least got a uh, we've got a line of inquiry, and we spent I think before we got Jules, it was four or five months going through suspects lists, um, obtaining blood, comparing, and um, and just uh, five or six of us doing that every day for quite some time. Why were you doing that if you had that match? We only had the match of the offender, mm-hmm. so after uh, we went through the suspects and Mikas was on there. But then we made the decision that we would any samples that we'd taken over the whole time would be put in to be um, to checked through in the comparison. And so, do you remember making the decision to to uh, that, visit him, arrest him? I can remember going to Wellington to arrest him with Shabby. We went two or three days before it, and I can still remember the morning of walking into his house and um, and um, taking him away. What was his reaction? He was, um, um, how would you put it, he's a very cold man. He was not flustered. He came with us by consent back to the Lahat police station and just didn't show any emotion whatsoever. In fact, there's a story that his partner at the time was with him when, when it came on the news that they'd found a match in the Theresa Cormack case, and, and she reported that he was pretty pretty cool at that moment as well. He was ve- very cool, but... He's a unique sort of guy. He's very cold, emotionless, doesn't talk a lot, and should be very accurate in that comment. So you were pleased to have what looked like your man, uh, not as pleased, I suppose, as Teresa's mum. Oh, it's pretty, it was pretty good for Kelly. It gave some, uh, um, probably the closure that she needed. She'd been pretty strong over the whole incident and um, very supportive and helpful, and it was good to be able to tell her that we'd arrested the offender. Have you stayed in touch with her, by the way? I haven't seen her for a long time. I, I do every now and again catch up with her, but I, not for some time now. 
She got any other kids? Yeah, there was a sister, younger sister. Okay. So, so you pretty you're pretty sure you've got your man now. Do you do you interview him? Does he give anything away, or or does he force you really to use the uh, the DNA evidence you've got to convict him? Okay. So we um we uh, the DNA was that powerful that we had him. Um, we had two samples, and both separately examined and came back as him. Um, we interviewed him for uh, the best part of a day, and um, he just he just had no no movement whatsoever in admitting to any offences. Just saying it wasn't him. We had the wrong person. And um, a couple of times there, we because he's so quiet and, and cold, you weren't sure, but you thought, oh, hey, maybe he's going to come across. But no, he didn't give any admissions whatsoever. Mm. When we explained to him that you know how the DNA had him. Um, you know, he was. We knew he was the offender. There was no outs, and he just didn't even move on that. We thought he might have given some sort of, uh, you know, something to the parents, but no, nothing at all. So you, so he pled not not guilty, and you went to a jury trial. Um, were you worried it might not stick? No, no. We, um, so he 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 went to a viadier and tested our case. I, on my interview, he tested um, the blooding that we'd done. Tested because we re-blooded him, took blood from mm. him again once we'd arrested him. And I've got to say, I did go by the – I had the book with me to make sure it was exactly right. And then he went to trial. And, um, I mean, it, it, you know, if ever there's a case you should plead guilty on, that was it. He was without an admission, but, the, um, you know, the things that had come out, he he, um, he was in the area. So that makes even the, what, the figures you quote of 60 million even more powerful. Mm. But he's stuck to his um, denials all the way. And um, every 10 years, I think it was after 10 years, he came up for parole. But uh, parole board wouldn't even entertain him because he um, he was so, uh, he showed no remorse whatsoever. And probably that was a blessing in the way because you wouldn't want him back on the streets. What must he have done in that 15 years since? Had he been in trouble? Had he been to jail for other stuff? It's hard to imagine he would go through with a crime like that and not do something else similar. He had done some things, but I don't think he'd been to jail. Um, and I would say from the circumstances of some of the feedback from the life he had lived, he would have uh, reoffended in um, ways that uh, probably didn't come to us. Mm. He, uh, he'd had partners with children. But it's probably an area that, you know, yeah, okay. you speculate on. He's dead now. Yes. I got called about him uh, when he was uh, found that he had a brain hemorrhage and that he was going to die for comments. And it was it's very difficult to be able to probably be really honest about what I think about that. Yeah, I can understand that. So wh- how do you think about this case now? Oh, I, I, it's so sad. I mean... You know, we 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 lived here um, in our office. We had a photo of her up on the on the walls because she was a pretty young girl, and um, with the mannequin of her in her gear, you know that that red raincoat. I always remember it. It's just so sad, so so sad. I don't think you know, like for Kelly, she she'd never get over this, and it, as I say, it did change our country. I believe it did. 
You've been listening to Crimes NZ with me, Jesse Mulligan. Now you can find more episodes in this series on the RNZ Podcasts page. It's also on Apple, Spotify, iHeart and wherever you catch your favourite podcasts. Don't forget to follow the series and if you enjoyed it, give it a rating to help others find it too. When you've finished this series and you're looking for the next great listen, try Gone Fishing or Black Sheep. They're both award-winning true crime podcasts from RNZ. Thanks for listening to Crimes NZ. I'm Jesse Mulligan. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.